0: Good morning, everybody, and happy St Patrick's Day. Welcome to this, the fourth of these Lenten Reflections, which I've called the Holy Mountain. The direct route between Egypt and Canaan would have been along the Mediterranean coast. And centuries on, the Coast Road is still the most direct route, though no longer the safest, because it passes through the Gaza Strip which these days is a hotbed of conflict and violence between the Egyptians, the Israelis, and the Palestinians. For similar reasons, 3,000 years ago, the coastal route was not chosen by Moses either. According to Exodus 13, verse 17, it was the way of the Philistines. And instead, God directs his people to go inland by the way of the wilderness, a route that was fraught with its own set of dangers, as we discovered last week. Today we come to the culmination of their pilgrimage, at least as understood by those who edited these ancient Hebrew texts. The giving of the law at Sinai and the forging of the covenant between Yahweh and his chosen people, Israel. Covenant, berith in Hebrew, diatheke in Greek, is a key idea in Christian thinking, so much so that our forebears use the word as the title for the Bible itself. We habitually refer to Scripture as, respectively, the Old and New Testaments, though we might equally translate their titles as the Old and New Testaments. Covenants. God, in his sovereign power and gracious love, takes the initiative. God calls women and men to himself and establishes an agreement based on covenant loyalty, Hesef, by which he binds himself to his people. A covenant goes deeper than a contract. Unlike a contract, which is fundamentally a business transaction, a covenant requires bonds of cooperation and above all trust. God commits himself to us and in return invites us to commit ourselves to him. In the language of the first letter of St John, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. These days, religion gets a bad press. But as the Latin origin of our English word reminds us, religio literally means that which binds us together. At its best, religion stops us falling apart. It provides us with an internal structure, with habits and disciplines that bind us to God and to one another. And that forms us into a community of faith when we eventually emerge from this pandemic, when we recover from the trauma of travelling our wilderness road, we need to embark upon the task of rebuilding our worshipping communities. Part of that task will involve identifying those habits that need to be left behind on the grass verge as we journey on. And those things that need to consolidate and reinvigorate in order that the great caravan of God can bind together and move on with confidence into God's future. When we pray, we're binding ourselves to God. Prayer opens us up, it opens up really deep levels within us to God's presence and redeeming love, including those bits of our personalities that we ignore, dislike or reject. In this dimension of the Sinai narrative that I want to explore with you today, but before I do, I do want to say a word about the giving of the law. In the Bible, justice is a rich concept. It is about a whole climate of social health. It's about the quality of life in a society that rests on and reinforces trust. Doing justice, in the language of scripture, is more than granting others their inalienable human rights. It's living and acting in such a way that God's passionate care and involvement in every person's welfare becomes visible. When we hear the word law spoken about in a religious context, we instinctively think of it, well, pejoratively and compare it unfavourably with grace. Alternatively, we associate the word with the body of customs and precedents that have been accumulated over centuries and become English law. But this is not how the Jew understands the word law. In Jewish understanding, the law is God's supreme gift to his people, an active sign of the love of God is why in the Psalms we're encouraged repeatedly to give thanks for the law and to meditate upon it day and night. The admonition was not given to terrify people into compliance but because when we meditate on God's law we have the opportunity to live in the most meaningful way possible. The human being shaped by the exodus is one who has begun to understand that God is their unseen companion in life, who is Lord of both the desert and the oasis. In God's company, the slave is set free and liberated for the service of others. The law celebrates the fact that life is more than just having a great time. The Bible records many place names, few of which can now be identified with certainty. One that can be identified with greater confidence is Sinai, which the Bible refers to variously as the mountain at Horeb, the mountain of God, or just the mountain. It is at Sinai that God gives to his people the law and speaks the Decalogue, the 10 life-giving words spoken to Moses that Christians traditionally call the Ten Commandments. If the first phase of the Exodus was the journey from slavery to freedom, the second phase of the journey was from the right to freedom to the responsibilities that freedom brings. And it was at Sinai that this understanding was forged. This morning, I want to concentrate on just one part of this extraordinary narrative. The encounter of Moses with God on the mountain. And Lawrence Brasky is going to read to us a section from chapters 33 and 34 of the book of
1: Exodus. Moses said to the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He, the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, "'If your presence will not go, "'do not carry us up from here, "'for how shall it be known "'that I have found favor in your sight, "'I and your people, unless you go with us? "'In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, "'from every people on the face of the earth.'" The Lord said to Moses, "'I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me. No one shall come up with you. And do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. Do not let flocks or herds graze in front of the mountain So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God
0: is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is one of the most important statements in the entire Bible. and It's about the nature of God. I'm sure we've all one time or another, observed the behavior of a friend or a neighbor and thought to ourselves that he or she is a a restless soul. In the paradox of our age, we have more disposable income and greater leisure than at any time in human history, but many feel lost and scared of having nothing to do. We're a restless generation of spiritual butterflies, unable to settle. Life's full of pitfalls and disappointments, successes and failures, joys and heartbreaks, and some people find it impossible to integrate them, and they end up profoundly discontented and unhappy. Rest is God's will for us and his gift to us in Jesus Christ. Writing in his Confessions in the late 4th century, Augustine says that Unless we're prepared to look deeper into ourselves, we'll always be restless and dissatisfied. The feeling that there must be something more will fill our waking hours, and it led Augustine to make a statement that has echoed down the Christian centuries. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Augustine believed that God's gift of inner peace is available here and now, if only we would open ourselves to God's life-transforming spirit. Centuries later in his poem, The Pulley, George Herbert takes Augustine's insight and explores it, and Ruth Frampton is going to read the poem to us now.
2: When God at first made man, having at last a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet, Let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast.
0: What's magnificent about George Herbert's poem is his certainty that God would find himself the loser, if we do not bind and turn to him. God wants us to be happy, to be at peace, to be bound to him in love. For her, pleasure, beauty, friendship, all point beyond themselves to what is greater, God. What we need is located not in these wonderful things, but beyond them. It's why we experience both ache and contentment in life. If meditating on the goodness of God fails to lead us to God, Herbert says, well, then perhaps exhaustion and dissatisfaction with the pleasures of life may yet succeed. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, says God to Moses. And we find identical language in the Psalms, notably in Psalm 95 the Veneti, which, in the old prayer book, is recited at morning prayer every day, a tradition that has its origin in the synagogue. Now, you know the words well, but listeners Tracy Doyle reads to us the second half of the psalm, which refers to the desert experience of the Israelites.
2: Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people whose hearts go astray and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger, I swore, they shall not enter my rest.
0: The reference here in the to Meribah and Massa is to Exodus chapter 17, verses six to eight, when the Israelites, it said, put God to the test, doubting his providential care, terrified, that they would die of thirst in the wilderness. As interpreted by Psalm 95, the two things that God finds intolerable in his chosen people are those who don't listen and those with hard hearts. And we all know how infuriating people are who don't or won't listen and how unattractive hard-hearted people are. Which is why learning to listen is a prerequisite of prayer. St. Benedict famously described prayer as listening to God with the ear of our heart. It's why we need continually to ask God to soften our hearts, making them pliable and receptive. Returning to the Sinai narrative, the other key word in this passage is glory. Show me your glory, praise Moses. And this is how God answers him. You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. See, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. In his book, The Idea of the Holy, the great Lutheran theologian, Rudolf Otto, coined a Latin phrase to describe Moses' encounter with God, which has always stayed with me. Mysterium tremendum et fascinans this passage pulses with the idea of the glory of God, with a sense of the mystery, the awe, the the essential unknowability of the divine. No human being can see God and live. Paradoxically, the revelation on Mount Sinai is one in which God is seen, at least in part. God places Moses in a cleft in the rock and covers him with the shadow of his hand until he passes by so that Moses sees God's back. God protects Moses from seeing his face, lest his beauty blind him. So here in the book of Exodus, we have the central paradox of Jewish spirituality. God is seen and yet not seen. God is known and yet is unknowable. God is revealed, but hidden. For the Jew, the encounter with God is always clothed in mystery, and this is reflected in the discretion with which Jews address God in worship, and why they found Jesus' intimacy with God an affront that bordered on blasphemy. It's why there is a prohibition on uttering the divine name in Judaism. I remember when I was a vicar and taking an RE lesson in our church school and watching a Jewish child in the class write G-D in her exercise book. So sacred is the word God that it cannot even be written down. In scripture, the symbol of divine unknowability is the Shekinah, the cloud. It's in the obscurity and the hiddenness of the cloud that the divine glory is perceived. Moses does see God, but only partially. For the Christian, this spiritual paradox finds resolution in the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in the fourth gospel, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, verse 9. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus holds out to his disciples the hope of personal transformation. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And most famously, we find the statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, Now we see only puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then face to face we shall see God. In Christian understanding it's the cross that most clearly reveals God to us. It's why in the gospel John uses the word glory specifically in relation to the cross. In the paradox of grace When we look at Christ crucified, we discover God looking back at us with love and compassion, seeking our love, binding us to him. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And so to our last passage from the Bible, though this time not from the book of Exodus, but instead from the book of Deuteronomy. It is part of Moses's speech to the people and it's read to us by Johnny Elvin.
1: Moses said to the people, take care and watch yourselves closely, so as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen, nor to let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, How you once stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people for me and I will let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me as long as they live on the earth. and may teach their children. So you approached and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain was blazing up to the very heavens, shrouded in dark clouds. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice.
0: God is known in the midst of darkness. By this scripture doesn't mean that we should assume all darkness to be an experience of the divine. In scripture darkness often conveys the experience of hostile forces of chaos and meaninglessness of the formless void and waste. Darkness may be an experience of Despair, desolation, and confusion, as in the story of Job. And yet, the Bible also speaks of the thick darkness where God was. Exodus chapter 20, verse 21. Now, we instinctively associate God with light, and at Evensong, we pray that God will lighten our darkness. But the question is, is God also darkness? That's the question that is this narrative poses and which the mystics wrestled with. Mystic, as the anonymous medieval writer of the cloud of unknowing, and later the Spanish Carmelite, St. John of the Cross. For the 17th century English poet Henry Vaughan, the answer to this conundrum was unmistakably, yes. In his poem, The Night, he says, there is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. I think Moses would have understood what Henry Vaughan was reaching after in his poem. The book of Exodus reminds us not to lose sight of the radical otherness of God. We should beware of domesticating the Almighty. We should be alert in our worship of substituting an almighty God for the God who is mysterium tremendum et fascinans. If we fall into that trap, We shouldn't be surprised when our contemporaries in their search for meaning and purpose in life turn away uninterested. And so we come to our closing prayers. O God, whose beauty is beyond our imagining and whose power we cannot comprehend, show us your glory as far as we can grasp it and shield us from knowing more than we can bear, until we may look upon you without fear. God of our pilgrimage, you have willed that the gate of mercy should stand open for those who trust in you. Look upon us with your favour, that we who follow the path of your will may never wander from the way of life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you all very much for being with me this morning as we share this fourth reflection. And I look forward to seeing you next week for the last and final reflection: crossing the Jordan. God bless.